Did you have a good Christmas? Yes? I don't see too many people shaking their heads. We had a very nice Christmas. Almost the entire family was home. Micah got stuck in Los Angeles. I think I mentioned that to many of you. His flight was canceled, and he finally was able to get a flight coming in on Wednesday night, but he would have to leave and be back in Los Angeles by Friday, so there was really no sense in him coming home. So the poor guy spent another Christmas all alone, last year in the UK and this year in L.A. <laughs> you know, last year he was serving at a church named uh, All Souls Church in the southern end of, uh, of England. And by God's grace, he was called to serve at All Souls Church in Burbank, California this year. And so the same name, a rather common name in certain circles, and there he is. But of course, uh, Tyler and his family were home, and you can imagine a little two-year-old running around. It just changes the whole household. And everybody's happy to see her in the morning, and at in all honesty, everybody's happy when she goes to bed at night, <laughs> early. <laughs> it's nonstop. And life just keeps changing, doesn't it? You know, we were, you know, as a family with three sons, very much accustomed to always having our three boys with us. And honestly, never imagined having our children living far away. Um, part of the Latino culture, Brazilian in particular, is that your children really don't move far away. And they just stay local. That's just the way it is. They go to school locally. And when they get married, sometimes they come and live with you. That's the way we do it. It's changed somewhat, but by and large, it is just that. I was speaking to a relative in South America, and she said, oh, you're so American. I said, what do you mean by that? She says, your children live all over. You've become American. And I said, well, after 57 years, you would think I would become American by now. Right? It was a good Christmas. It was good not only to be with family and to share gifts with each other. It was good especially to be able to celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ. You know, Christmas would be meaningless. It would be nice and a good way to spend a few days, but certainly it would be meaningless if all it was was about giving gifts to friends and family and about good cheer and about greenery and about certain foods. It would be meaningless. What makes Christmas meaningful is the incarnation, the fact that God became man and that he came to us to die. You see, it doesn't stop there in the manger. Christmas becomes meaningful only when we see the end. When we see that Christ came in order to die on behalf of our sins. And for that we can say we love Christ. And we enjoy Christmas. Some of you love Christmas. Good for you. How long will you keep your tree up? Now that's the question, right? Open once again, if you will, to Colossians 1.24. I want you to see this morning that joy is not a secret. It's not a secret at all. We have been exploring this particular passage, Colossians 1.24, in different venues here 
at Hope Church. And in particular, we looked very specifically at Colossians 1.24 at our Gateway Theological Institute. We looked at it very specifically, and we looked at various different views. We're not going to do that this morning. If you're interested in that, we can certainly share that with you. But, um, but we're not going to look at all those details. But it is a passage that if you read on your own, you, you wonder, what does it mean? And verse 24 is a bit complex. Look at how it reads. It says, this is Paul writing to the church in Colossae. And he says, Now I rejoice in my suffering for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body that is the church. Now, frankly, it's a text we have looked at before here at Hope Church. In fact, just about two years ago, at the beginning of the pandemic, I thought this would be a good verse to look at, uh, and we did it online, and some of you watched it. Well, I want to restate those points this morning in regards to joy not being a secret. For many people, joy is a secret. They don't know how to find it. My friends, this morning, I want you to leave here knowing how to find joy. Okay? These are not just religious words being spoken on a Sunday morning. I want you to leave here knowing how to find joy. Not happiness, but joy. Having said that, you know very well, if you're reading through your scriptures, that from the very beginning of creation, a conflict was promised. A conflict was announced. There was going to be hostility. Hostility between God, the people of God, and Satan, Lucifer, or this world. God promised, and get this, God promised that he would put enmity between the people who follow the lie of the serpent and the people of Christ, those who defend the truth of God. It's recorded in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Do you remember, any of you remember the theological term for Genesis 3.15? He's a student at Gateway. <laughs> Proto-evangelium, right? means the first mention of the gospel in the scriptures. It's not in the middle of the Bible, it's not at the end of the Bible, it's in the third chapter of the Bible, the first mention of the saving work of Jesus Christ. What is the term again? Proto-Evangelium. That's a little Latin for you. Now you know a little Latin. Now you know too little Latin. You know this little Latin, and you know that word. Right? And what we see in Genesis 3.15 is that the heel of truth would be bruised. That is, the heel of Christ, the heel of his people will be bruised, which gives us to understand that there's going to be a price for defending the truth. There's going to be a price for defending the truth. Uh, often there's going to be some suffering when we follow after Jesus Christ. And I know that is not a means by which to attract people to Christ. Oh, come to Jesus, you're going to suffer. <laughs> but I want to be honest with you. From the very get-go of the scriptures, it tells us there is suffering involved in following Jesus Christ. Let's not get away from that reality. But listen, there's also victory for those who follow Jesus Christ. And here's the victory. In that very passage, Genesis 3.15, we're told that whereas Christ and his people are going to be bruised in a heel, minor wound, the serpent, Satan, 
the father of lies. He is going to be the great loser. His head will be mortally crushed at the cross. And his lies will be silenced at the final judgment when Jesus makes all things new. So with faith, with confidence, we engage in defending the truth of Jesus Christ. And we're called to do our share. Each one of us here are called to do our share in our time. And this is our time. With a full knowledge that God's truth is going forth throughout this world, we are not alone, far from it. And one day, his truth is going to triumph over everyone and everything you see. The victory of Christ's church is going to encompass the entire earth. Even as water encompasses the seas, so the gospel will encompass all of this planet. And so we have reason to celebrate, don't we? We have reason to be joyous. No question about it. So going back to Colossians chapter 1, look at verse 23. There the Apostle Paul calls himself a servant of Jesus Christ. And this is not a rare or high title. It's not to be misunderstood to mean anything more than just that. Someone who serves God. Notice here that the Apostle Paul is not calling himself a cardinal or a bishop. He's simply calling himself a servant of God. Literally, he is saying that there is no reason for me to be here on this planet other than this, to serve God. If you were to ask the Apostle Paul, so what are you all about? Why are you here? He would say, to serve God. What would you say if somebody asked you that question? Well, let me ask you. Why are you here? Oh, not at church. You would say, it's Sunday right now. Why are you here on this earth? What's your purpose? The Apostle Paul made it clear, I am here to serve Christ. I'm his servant. It's not that I don't do anything else, but I am first and foremost here because I'm a servant of Jesus Christ. And his purpose, my friends, is no different than what God has called each one of us to be as well. If he's redeemed your soul, if you call him Savior, then he's giving you this purpose. Serve me. So we have here in Colossians 1, beginning at verse 24, and if you run down to verse 29, we won't be looking at all those verses, but you'll notice that there are seven different aspects that should characterize the life of anybody who serves the Lord Jesus Christ. Anyone who professes faith and devotion to God through Jesus Christ is characterized in these verses here. And I'm going to spend time just on one, verse 24, joy. Joy. What's a character of a Christian? Joy. Now, keep in mind, I am preaching this to you and to myself. None of us here are exempt. We all need to recall joy. I got a kick out of watching my little granddaughter, who um, is a two-year-old, and suddenly she just changes and starts crying. 
for no reason, apparently, to us. But she didn't get what she wanted, and she just starts crying. And her father would say to her, where's your joy? She goes, okay, I'll be joyful. And she changes. <laughs> she changes. And she's good until, well, something else happens. Where's your joy? Oh, I'll be joyful. <laughs> it's amazing how children can be taught. Verse 24 speaks about joy. And there should be a particular attitude of joy whenever God, wherever God has placed you in this world, in this life. A joy that says, I want to serve my God. Wherever God has placed you, he intends for you not only to persevere, but to do so by keeping your eyes fixed on him and therefore be joyful. And this is a struggle for many Christians, to be joyful right there wherever God has placed you. It always seems to be better somewhere else, doesn't it? It always seems to be greener on the other side until, of course, you see their water bill. God, God expects for us to be joyful wherever he has planted us. There's a great example of this in Hebrews chapter 12 as to why we can be joyful. In Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, I'll read it to you. It reads this way. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Why and how did Jesus Christ endure the cross with joy? Because of what was set before him. There was going to be a particular pleasure, a particular gratification, a particular joy that was set before him. Therefore, he was able to endure the cross. He knew what was coming after the cross. It's not that the cross was in any way pleasurable. It was not. What was reason for him to rejoice was the aftermath of the cross, what he would accomplish through the cross, that brought him joy. And so he was able to endure the suffering because he knew what it was going to result in. And what a lesson that is for us. My friends, whatever it is that's going on in your life, whatever is going to happen in 2023, please understand, God has not abandoned you. There is a purpose in it, and he will use it for your good if you trust in him. And so, in that same passage of Hebrews 12, jump down to verse 4, it says, In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Jesus Christ did. And yet, he was joyous. So you too can be joyous if you keep your eyes focused on the reason for why you serve, why you labor, why you live on this planet. I know circumstances can be overwhelming. And from day to day, you tend to forget. But my friends, follow the example of Christ. There's a purpose, even in our struggles. A purpose for why God allows suffering to come into your life. 
And so back in Colossians 1.24, again, Paul writes, I rejoice in what was suffered for you. And I fill up in my flesh what is lacking in regards to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. Now, I'll be brief here, but let me explain what Paul is not saying. Paul is not saying here that he suffered as Jesus Christ suffered. And he is not saying that his suffering was part of Christ's suffering on a cross. He's not saying that. And neither is he saying that Christ suffered, uh, rather that, that Christ's suffering was incomplete. Christ did not suffer enough. And therefore I have to suffer in order to make, to make Christ's suffering complete. He's not saying that Christ lacked in his suffering. He's not saying that he needs to somehow supplement the suffering of Christ. By the way, this is Roman Catholicism, which says that you need to suffer in order to gain your salvation because the suffering of Christ was not suffice. And therefore, you need to do penance or you need to be sent to purgatory or you need to do whatever amount of suffering because the suffering of Christ was not sufficient to save your soul. It's not what Paul is saying. But it sure does sound like it, doesn't it? If you look at the verse, honestly. Rather, what Paul is saying is that Christ suffered for others. He did. And Paul here is saying, I am willing to suffer for others as well. And he's willing to suffer on behalf of who? Christ specifically, but also for Christ through the church. I'm willing to suffer for the church of Jesus Christ. And you say, of course, you're the Apostle Paul. Isn't that your job? This is what I'm going to say to you. You need to suffer for the church of Christ as well. Does that feel uneasy? It does to me. In fact, it's even hard to say it to you. Paul is saying here that serving God means suffering on behalf of the church of God. Listen, there is no greater institution other than marriage than the church of Jesus Christ. If there's anything worth suffering for, it is Christ, your marriage, and the church. Oh, there's other things worthy as well. But these are the priorities of the scriptures. And the Apostle Paul is saying here that he has suffered and will continue to suffer on behalf of God's kingdom, and therefore he can rejoice. But he's also saying that he has not suffered as much as Jesus Christ suffered. So what is lacking? What is lacking is Paul suffering like Christ suffered. Christ suffered great amounts. Paul says, you know, I've suffered quite a bit, and you can read about it in 1st, 2nd Corinthians, but he has not suffered like Christ suffered. And he's saying, I'm willing to keep on suffering. I'm going to serve even if it means I have to suffer. I'm going to serve God even if it is not easy. Interesting, isn't it? Now, notice here, 
for those of you who like to be a little more technical, I'll just point this out. In the words here of the Apostle Paul, verse 24, he says, what is lacking in Christ's afflictions or in Christ's suffering, that word there, affliction, in the original Greek language, is not the uh, word for atonement or suffering on the cross. That's a whole different other word. That's uh, the word paschal or or, or from where we get the word passion, and it refers to what we talk about in the suffering of the cross, uh, Easter. That's not the word used here. Uh, rather, here the Apostle Paul is talking about the sufferings that Christ experienced in terms of being rejected, uh, sufferings uh, of being threatened, and, and threats of imprisonment as well, uh, the suffering of disbelief. Can you imagine being Christ and being told you're a liar? This past month, I was called a liar twice. And at the end of the conversation, the fellow said to me, well, thanks for listening to me. I said, well, thanks for your frankness. But personally, I don't like being called a liar. Lying is not my habit. Imagine being Christ and being called a liar. The disbelief, the insults, the mockery. And Paul is saying, I'm willing to suffer more of this on behalf of the church of Jesus Christ. I'm willing. Because I haven't suffered quite as, quite as much as Christ did. So he's saying that the Christian life is often a continuation of that same sort of suffering when you serve God. People will mock you. People will reject you. People will not believe in you. People will disassociate from you. Why? Because you follow Jesus Christ. If you followed Buddha, they would not. They would say, wow, that's really neat. Can you tell me more? In fact, even in our culture today, if you were to follow Allah, people would be more willing to embrace you than if you were to say, I follow Jesus Christ. Isn't that amazing? How the tables have turned. But there's nothing new under the sun. This has happened before many times in history, and the church survived, Christians survived, and so will you. And we also know the end, don't we? We know the outcome. We know who the winner is. We know the end of the story. So we continue the work of Jesus Christ, the work that he began. And I call on you to join in on not only the serving of Christ, but even if it means suffering. <laughs> even if it means suffering. And please, I'm not suggesting that we look forward to suffering. I'm telling you that this is a broken world. We were promised that there's going to be enmity between God and Satan, between Christians and the world. That is a promise. In fact, it says God put that enmity there. And so we can expect it. Listen, you have salvation of your soul. Now serve God through his church, even if it means affliction. Will you regret it? No. Will there be times of tears? Yes. Will sometimes you wonder and scratch your head and say, God, what are you doing? Yes. Will you be the victor at the end? Absolutely. Well, inner joy, my friends, 
is not the same as happiness. Happiness is external. Joy is inner. And here the, the Apostle Paul says, I rejoice. I rejoice. I have joy in what was suffered on your behalf. So let's take a quick look at what he's talking about when he says that he has this inner joy even if it means that he had to suffer on behalf of the church of Jesus Christ. Again, joy is not external. Rather, it's an internal delight. Um, I think we could describe joy as being a thrill in the soul, a pleasure that rests in your heart. And so Paul says elsewhere, Philippians 4.4, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say, rejoice. And the statement seems overly optimistic, doesn't it? Rejoice in the Lord most of the time? No. Rejoice in the Lord always, and then emphatically says, again, I say, rejoice. And sometimes, oftentimes, in the best of our days, we find it hard to rejoice always. (laughs) Would you agree? Now, keep in mind that the Apostle Paul writes this when he's sitting in jail. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. In fact, archaeologists tell us that the cells where he was imprisoned there uh, often flooded during certain times of the year, during the rain season. And he would be, for weeks on end, sitting in water, knee-high, waist-high. Can you imagine that? (laughs) And in hopes of not keep getting his letters wet. He probably had a write up here like this, you know, rejoice in the Lord always again, I say, rejoice. These are not vain, empty words. These are not just words of optimism. These are the reality of one, per- one particular Christian man who knew Christ and who made his life a service to God. And somebody might say, well, this guy was out of his mind. What was he so happy about? It had nothing to do with his circumstances. It had to do with the relationship that he had with the living God that transcended all his circumstances. That's why he was able to say, rejoice like I am rejoicing. You see, he wasn't just telling us to do it. He was saying, imitate me. Here's a goal for you in 2023. Live a life in service to God by which you could turn to others and say, not proudly, but with satisfaction, say, imitate me. Be so daring as to say, imitate me. That's what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11.1. Be imitators of me. He says it three, three times in the New Testament. Imitate me. It's a call for all Christians, really, to live that sort of life whereby we could set ourselves as an example to others. Imitate me. Have you lost your joy? Joy is possible when you have confidence in God. Joy does not overlook circumstances. It does not try to make something negative look positive. Uh, Rather, joy looks beyond the circumstances 
and sees the results because of your confidence in God. Now, let me say this. Sometimes we suffer because we just make poor decisions or we say rash things or we do things we ought not to do. I'm not talking about that this morning. I'm talking about suffering afflictions because you are a follower of Christ. Okay. But joy looks beyond the circumstances and says, I will trust in the Lord. Joy is a deep down confidence in the fact that God is in control. And that control does not change when our circumstances change or deteriorate. Therefore, neither does our joy. Joy is based on the fact that God is in control. Our circumstances don't control us. Our circumstances don't control God. You know, whenever I meet someone who is discouraged, I, I tend to talk to them about their situation. And, and usually, uh, as you can imagine, uh, most people just want to talk about their situation. Right? And in fact, well, often they tell me the whole story, beginning to end. But really, the circumstances should not be the topic of our conversation. Uh, what I need to talk to them about is their relationship with the Lord. Uh, but usually that's not what they want to talk about. Uh, they want to revert back to the circumstances that have made me so down and out. Because they simply cannot fathom the idea of being joyful in these circumstances. And you know exactly what I'm talking about, right? How can you expect me to be joyful if... <laughs> it just sounds absurd. And some people actually find joy to be repulsive when things are going bad. They say, joy now? Absolutely not. How dare you? It's almost as if they feel that they have the right to be discouraged, the right to be down. And the suggestion to be joyful steals from them this right to moan and groan and wail and shake their fist at God. I remember this one high school girl who would always sit right behind me in the church van and she would just complain and complain and complain and complain. Till finally I said, Jen, can you stop? I said, we're, we have a long trip. We're going from here, from Jersey, all the way down to Texas. You got three complaints, girl. That's all you get, three complaints. And she said, oh, but it makes me feel so good when I complain. And she kept her three. She took all three, but that's all she did, <laughs> three complaints. She thought it was absurd that somebody would steal her right to moan and groan and to find joy in the midst of adversity. Well, why do I want to talk to people about their relationship with God when they are down and out? Well, it's because joy comes when we recognize that Christ, what Christ has done for our lives, for us. If you are living well with God, then I know that you are familiar with his sovereign care over your life. That his providence is not strange to you. If you are living well with God, then I know that God is up close and ministering in your life. However, if you are living distant from the Lord... 
then I also know that in your suffering you are not going to fare well. And that you will not weather the storm. Because you've forgotten who's in control. And you see everything then through the lens of your suffering. My friends, your relationship with God will determine whether your troubles become a trial or a temptation. What's the difference? A trial will refine your faith. A, ten a temptation will discard your faith. Same circumstances. You decide whether it becomes a temptation to flee from God or a trial by which your faith will draw you closer to God. Joy is possible when you have confidence in God. You know what else produces joy? Humility. Humility produces joy. Let me show you how. The Apostle Paul always thought of himself as being unworthy, uh, not only of his calling, what he was doing, but he was, felt himself unworthy of God's blessings, period. He never thought that God owed me something. In fact, he thought that dying for Christ would be the least he can do. How many of us think that way? Honestly. Don't raise your hands, but tell yourself. You might want to whisper it to the person next to you. Do you think that way? The dying for Christ is not really a sacrifice. After all, he died for me. You see, because the Apostle Paul was humble, he didn't think of himself as too high to suffer for Christ. He did not say, well, I'm not worthy of that. I don't deserve this suffering. How many times have we told God that? I don't deserve this. I know somebody else, though, Lord. But not me. The Apostle Paul never said that. He saw things quite differently. He said, oh no, I don't deserve your blessings. You know, here we go. We, we make bad decisions all the time, right? How often do we sin? Have you been keeping a record? I don't. I ran out of paper. And yet we insist that God should be blessing us. Right? But Lord, I know that I am a broken, wretched sinner, but you still should be blessing me. The Apostle Paul knew better. He says, I am a broken, wretched sinner. Lord, thank you for blessing me nonetheless. You see, humility brings joy. I can begin to comprehend and make use of my affliction when I see that God owes me absolutely nothing, that it is all a matter of grace. We should not expect God to keep us free from pain or trouble or suffering. Listen, anybody who says that the Christian life is exempt from pain, trouble, suffering, affliction, hardship is lying to you. You do not find that in the scriptures. In fact, the scriptures say very clearly quite the opposite, including here. 
It's not that all of the Christian life is hard. It's not. It's actually very pleasurable. At times, very easy. But it's that suffering does happen, often because I'm a follower of Christ. But I don't deserve any different. And neither do you. You will lose joy when you start to think that you're too good to suffer what you are suffering. That God owes you or owes you something. Let me list for you a couple of joy robbers. Joy robbers. As I mentioned already, circumstances rob us of joy. Pride robs us of joy. But here's another one. People rob us of joy. Uh, you know those kind of people. Um, people who you walk up to say, hey, how you doing? And they're like joy vacuums. They, they take this vacuum and they put it to your heart and they <laughs> suck all the joy out of you in just two, two sentences. You're like, whoa. Beware of those people. Some people will abuse you, misuse you. Some people will scorn you. Some people even intentionally hurt us. They're joy robbers. Some people are just careless and they handle us wrongly. Uh, some people enjoy chewing us up and spitting us out. Joy robbers. How should we respond? Well, Romans chapter 12, verse 18 says this. So far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. As far as it depends on you, do your best to be at peace with all people. That also suggests that at times you won't be able to be at peace with them. But do your best to be at peace, even with them. Matthew chapter 5, beginning at verse 11 says, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of Christ. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. How can that be? Well, we'll go back to Colossians 1.29. We were looking at verse 24. Look at verse 29. It says, And to this end I labor, struggling with all energy which so powerfully works in me. In other words, Paul commits a lot of effort into recalling this way of thinking so that he will remain joyful and continue to serve God. Listen, if there's no joy, you're not going to want to serve God. You know what else steals our joy? Possessions. Possessions. Here's a very wise prayer. I think we should all make a habit of praying. It's Proverbs 30. Proverbs 30, verses 8 and 9. This is how it reads. I have a paraphrase version here. It says, give me neither poverty nor riches. Right? Now, the poverty and nobody, that's not a problem for any of us, right? What do we pray for? Riches, right? Here the proverb says, give me neither poverty nor riches. Why? It says, feed me with the food that is my portion so that I will not be full and forget you and say, who is the Lord? Or so that I, or so that I not be in want and deny you by stealing and so profane the name of my God. Now, let me clarify that for you. It says, Lord, give me my portion. If you give me more than my portion, if you give me too much, 
I'm going to do what most people do. I'm going to say, I am satisfied. I don't need God. I have all this stuff. So don't give me too much because I know myself. I am going to stop trusting you. I'm going to stop following you. I'm going to stop worshiping you. Why? Because I have all this. What do I need you for? And Lord, don't give me so little. Don't give me so little that I would have to go out and steal. Cheat on my income tax. Take what doesn't belong to me. And profane your name. So give me, Lord, my portion. Give me my portion. Have you considered, I don't know, maybe some of you are rich. I don't know. But I'm going to guess that most of us are not rich. Are we ever rich enough? Right? Um, I don't think most of us have a problem with, with being wealthy. But have you ever considered that maybe you're not wealthy because God is protecting you from abandoning him? Because maybe if we were rich, we would say, you know, Lord, I have plenty. I don't need you today. But don't go too far, because who knows what the stock market is going to do tomorrow. Could it be? Maybe God's blessed you by not giving you more than your portion. Here's another joy robber. Worry. Worry. W-O-R-R-Y. What does worry accomplish? Well, it accomplishes two things. I'd say it adds gray hairs to your head and it steals your joy. Matthew 6, beginning of verse 25, reads, For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life. And who of you being worried can add a single hour to your life? Isn't that true, though? How many times have we worried and it has done absolutely nothing for our good? You know, I was just down in Cuba, as you know. And I was surprised that I was the oldest person there in, in the group of about 20 people. I was the oldest one. <laughs> I remember when I was the youngest. And now I've come to the point in life where I'm the oldest. But I look like I was one of the youngest because their lives are so hard. When they told me their ages, I was like, oh, you're 51? You're 47? And they looked older than me. Just a hard, worry-filled life. It will do nothing for you. It'll steal your joy. Here are some joy keepers, and I'm wrapping it up here in case you're wondering. Here are some joy keepers. We already said humility will bring you joy. We already said that trust in God's sovereign rule will bring you joy. But here's a third one. Devotion to Jesus Christ will bring you joy. Not happiness, okay? It might bring you happiness too, but I'm not concerned about that. I'm talking about joy, the inner thrill of the soul. Devotion to Christ, a commitment to the standards of Christ for my life, a pursuit of God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. That will, I assure you, will bring you joy. Here's another one. Frequent visits to the throne of God will bring you joy. Prayer. 
the study of the word of God, the worship, corporate worship of God will bring you joy. What do I mean by corporate? I'm talking about the people of God together. Here's another joy keeper, joy giver. A desire of God's will for your life will bring you joy. You know, we all know that God will have his way ultimately, right? If not immediately, ultimately God will have his way with every single one of us. He will have the last say. But joy comes to the person who says, Lord, I want to desire your will for my life. God will have his way, but you will have joy when you say, Lord, have your way. Give me a desire in my own heart for your will in my life. And you'll discover that God will give you the desires of your heart. You will find joy. Here's a good way to pray on a regular basis. Say, Lord, give me strength to endure and give me a desire for your will. Strength to endure and a desire for your will. Let me close by sharing with you, I think it's a familiar illustration by one missionary from the 1800s. I apologize because I know I've read this before to you more than once, but allow me to read it again. It's a comment by the missionary to the then um, dark continent, Africa, back in the 1800s where Africa was still an unknown continent. In went a doctor missionary by the name of David Livingston. Now, listen, Livingston was not a perfect man. In fact, we could say very easily he was far from being perfect. Nonetheless, he was determined to serve God, to do the best he could, and off he went. He did it from 1840 to 1873. That's over, over 30 years of service in Africa. He gave up the prestige of a medical practice in Great Britain. He separated himself at times at great lengths, even from his family, in order to serve in the dark continent. In the process, he was mauled by a lion. He was attacked by natives. He suffered from malaria. Eventually, he died of internal bleeding due to dysentery, often lost. He was often lost in the jungles of Africa. Well, somewhere in the middle of his career, he came back to Great Britain and they decided to give him a dinner, an applause, an accolade, a plaque, and say, look at what this guy's done. Look at the sacrifice that David Livingston has made. Let me read to you how he responded when he got behind the podium and everybody stood up and cheered him and said, what a sacrifice, what a sacrifice. Listen to what he said. People talk of the sacrifice I have made in spending so much of my life in Africa. Can something be called a sacrifice which is simply paid back as a small part of a great debt owed to our God, which we can never repay? Is that a sacrifice which brings its own blessings, rewards, and healthy activity? The consciousness of doing good, the peace of mind, and the bright hope of a glorious destiny hereafter? Away with the word sacrifice, he says, in such a view and with such a thought. 
It is emphatically no sacrifice. Say rather, it is a privilege. Anxiety, sickness, suffering, or danger, now and then, with a foregoing of the common conveniences and charities of this life, may make us pause and cause the spirit to waver and the soul to sink. But let this only be for a moment. All there are, all these are nothing when compared to the glory which will be revealed in and for us. He concludes, I never made a sacrifice. My friends, joy is not a mystery. It's not a secret. Joy comes when we lock our eyes on the person of Jesus Christ. When we see his power, when we see his promises, when we look back at our own past experiences with Christ and say, there he was. Never will he leave you. This is what he said. Never will he renounce you. Never will he abandon you. He is faithful and he will do what he has promised. So we can read from Psalm 30, verse 5. His favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may last for the night, but a shout of joy comes in the morning. Maybe today is morning. Maybe your morning is at the end of 2023. You know, maybe your Morning may be when you rest in your coffin and you wake up on the shores of heaven. But I guarantee you that these words will come true to those who know Christ, follow Christ, pursue Christ, and are even willing to serve sacrificially Christ. You will wake up with a shout of joy. And I look forward to hearing it. I'm going to be shouting right next to you. Let me pray. My Lord, our Lord, how good it is to know that you are our God and we, your people, give to us your joy. Let us know the benefits of thanksgiving and the pleasures of joy as we lock our eyes on you. And as we come to the Lord's table this morning, we pray, God, that you will remind us of the depth of your love as you consecrate us to yourself again and again and again. In your name we pray. Amen.